One concern and one fear that I have with regard to these trials is that they shouldn't turn into a formality. They shouldn't be done just for the sake of a show. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. All rise. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Janet. So, the justice system in Ukraine courts is really busy. Uh, it's now December, and a couple of months ago, that was it back in October, the Prosecutor General said they documented at least 36,000 incidents of war crimes. But how many have made it to court, uh, we are wondering, and what happens when they do? So far, the UN has said that there have been guilty verdicts against six members of the Russian armed forces and affiliated armed groups for violations of the rules and customs of war, and there have been a number of treason-related cases. We managed to catch up with some Ukrainian judges who were here in The Hague. We'll explain why in a bit. And here to start with is Hannah Miner. She's from the Novomoskovsky court of the Dnipropetrovsk region, and here she is describing her daily routine. As soon as alert is announced, all judges and court staff must proceed to a safe place, whereas court security staff take all visitors out of the court building. In this situation, court security don't allow anybody into the court building. After mass rocket missile attack on the energy and infrastructure facilities on October 10th, Ukraine introduced scheduled blackouts. And since that time, every day, they switched off electricity for four hours every day. It means that our normal eight-hour working days As you can hear, the answers are in Ukrainian, and we had a great translator. Yeah, the backdrop was this packed conference here in The Hague. It was organized by the TMC Asser Institute together with Global Rights Compliance, GRC. They've been running a Matro Ukraine program since 2020. It was funded by the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which has meant that they've actually been working in Ukraine. And the judges themselves are also getting training and support from a USAID-backed Justice for All program. Before we go further to explore more of what the judges had to say about their daily lives and how the courts is coping, we wanted to get some more context. Yeah, I turned uh, to Gayan Nurojanian, and she was also at the conference, and she's been working actually monitoring these trials. She's at the Arctic University of Norway, a postdoctoral researcher there, and at the Kiev Mohila Academy in Ukraine. And I was wondering to start with when I was chatting to her whether these trials that the judges are putting on in Ukraine under these incredibly difficult war conditions are not basically just too soon, and how she really assesses what's happening in the courts. It's difficult to uh, use one word here and not to be nuanced. I think that I could say that it is Ukrainian judicial system that will have to deal with the majority of these trials. And especially the ones that take place now, 
so the crimes committed by direct perpetrators. And one could say that it's too soon or too early to deal with it. We are in the middle of the conflict. But on the other hand, I think international humanitarian law requires that the state holds these trials and provides accountability for war crimes. And it also doesn't make sense for me not to hold these trials just because there is a war going on if you have the evidence and if the person is in detention, because that person in detention also has a right not to be held in detention unreasonably long, if you look at it from that perspective. And the cases that the courts have tried for the moment concern single episodes and direct perpetrators. So they are not complex trials. And I think that can partly explain why it was possible to bring these cases to the court so early after the full-scale invasion happened. But one concern and one fear that I have with regard to these trials is that they shouldn't turn into a formality. This shouldn't be done just for the sake of a show, a showing that the justice is taking place or uh, not to have a conviction and uh, then use that, uh, for example, uh, to exchange the person for a prisoner of war in Ukraine. But what I mean is that it shouldn't be just a show trial. This is, should be a genuine fair trial. So we're back with the judges and they start by introducing themselves. My name is Vitlana Yakovleva. I am a justice of the Supreme Court Cassation Criminal Court. My name is Hanna Maina. I am a judge of Novomoskovsky City and Rayon Court. So, exactly how are they working in these conditions? Svetlana explains. Specifics of adjudicating criminal cases called for a need to find some organizational solutions, how to organize operations of the entire judiciary under martial law. Every court in every region has to consider such cases. But some courts couldn't operate because they were occupied or destroyed or wet. So we needed to find some solution. We came to a conclusion that such urgent criminal cases needed to be transferred from one court to another court. This means that first instance courts like Anna's court have their own cases, plus they have other cases which were transferred to them from other courts. So the workload uh, has increased dramatically. Uh, so subject matter uh, jurisdiction of three courts which were occupied was transferred to our court. This effectively means that those courts, for example, one of those courts had uh, 22 judges, the second one had 15 judges. It means that those, all those cases were transferred to us. Our workload increased dramatically, but only one judge was also transferred to our court. So your, your workload tripled, your capacity to do work diminished dramatically. 
Yeah. Good luck. How? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you're now not only in this very difficult physical set of conditions, but also what I imagine a new mental set of conditions to do with, as judges, you now have to deal with war crimes, crimes against humanity, and, and those, you know, everything that you need to learn as judges. Can you describe to us how you have now become the new experts in this area that you are now able to, to, to be judges of war crimes, crimes against humanity? The major burden of adjudicating war crime cases rests with the shoulders of Ukrainian judges. We didn't have any experience of adjudicating such cases because there had been no war. Ukrainian judges had no such experience. Now they need to enhance their knowledge and with assistance from international partners, international technical assistance projects, we are learning, we are gaining new knowledge. You said before, as a judge of the Supreme Court, you didn't have um, very many war crimes cases yet because they're all at lower courts. But are you, like yourself, preparing for when they come to the Supreme Court? Or crime cases have not reached the Supreme Court because of a short time period, because they, such cases first need to be adjudicated at the first instant court, then they need to be appealed, and only then they will reach the Supreme Court. The current task of the Supreme Court is to learn how to qualify war crimes, to develop case law and develop recommendations to lower instance court how to adjudicate war crime cases. Another task is to develop recommendations to courts which are located on the territory which is not controlled by Ukrainian government and courts which are located on the areas of hostilities. As the number of war crime cases increases, the Supreme Court will develop recommendations and give recommendations to lower instance courts in order to ensure a fair trial. There have been some questions also in this panel that there may be challenges to fair trial rights. And I think you made the comment that almost everybody in Ukraine is a victim that would include judges. What are the kind of ethical questions that you have to adjudicate cases and crimes where you are possibly or your family is a victim of, of similar crimes? Impartiality and, and also that it's hard to get uh, defense lawyers because everybody is affected. Uh, so let's distinguish victims of specific crimes and just people suffering from the war. So I meant uh, that people, uh, all Ukrainians are suffering because of electricity blackouts or whatever. So I, I didn't mean that all Ukrainians are victims of specific war crimes. If a judge is a victim of specific crime, he will never consider the case. It's a requirement of the national legislation. As far as suffering of judges is concerned, so 
it shouldn't preclude judges from being impartial and unbiased. That's, uh, the law required them to be unbiased. And this question uh, that some participants raised, that it's hard to find defense counsel for people on trial? If the accused is not able to, to find a defense lawyer, uh, then the defense lawyer will be appointed by the state. And uh, if uh, the accused is not happy with defense lawyer, he will always recuse him or her and find another one. Hopefully, Ukrainian parliament, as the need might be, amend the legislation so that the accused may engage international defense lawyer. Unfortunately, the Ukrainian, according to the constitution of Ukraine, the Ukrainian judiciary cannot propose legislative amendments, unlike U.S. judiciary. Let me add uh, with defense lawyers. So when considering case, uh, criminal cases and permissions, issuing permissions for carrying out pre-trial investigation in absentia, participation of a defense attorney in such proceedings is mandatory. So while considering such materials, I noted that some defense attorneys are very professional. But at the same time, some defense attorneys demonstrate formal attitude. So they formally they deny something, but in fact they don't deny it. So whereas some defense lawyers act passively, they deny it, but they are not active. Whereas the other defense attorneys, they ground why they reject prosecutor's motion, for example. They provide strong arguments for denial. We've seen a number of trials that have been around the issue of national security. I mean, some trials of Ukrainians who were accused of supplying information to the Russian side or, or even fighting for, for the Russian side. Have you experienced these kind of trials? So I could ask him, um, what can you tell me about these trials? Ukrainian national legislation envisages criminal liability for providing information to enemy and for collaboration with enemies. This is a new category of cases which arose after beginning of the full-scale aggression. And the purpose is just to punish perpetrators. In the panel discussion, there was a talk about hybrid courts and coming in with international judges, and you seem to be quite supportive of the idea that maybe international judges can come in and help out with Ukrainian cases. I wondered if you can explain why, and I also wondered if Hannah then can explain if she would like some international judges to help her in her court, or preferably not. We have certain experience of engaging international experts in national proceedings. We engage international experts in the justice selection process, and also uh, for so-called 
Ethical Council, and they are also engaged in selection of members of the High Qualification Commission of Judges Ukraine. This is authority which is responsible for evaluation and selection of Ukrainian judges. Two considerations, uh, engagement of international uh, experts or judges in uh, those hybrid tribunals will first ensure timely, high quality and proper adjudication of cases. And second, nobody would accuse them of being biased or impartial. Unless the Constitution of Ukraine is amended, these are Ukrainian judges who will adjudicate cases, and I do believe that they have capacity to do this. I couldn't agree more with Svetlana. Again, I repeat that according to Ukrainian Constitution, all the Ukrainian judges are eligible to adjudicate cases, and I do believe that they are quite... They're quite capacious to, to do so. And second, uh, only citizens of Ukraine may be uh, Ukrainian judges. According to the current Ukrainian legislation, there is no possibility to somehow incorporate international tribunals into Ukrainian court system. So we covered a lot of ground there, Steph, um, in a lot of different uh, areas that, that we uh, asked them about. I'm not suggesting that we managed to do it all in, in incredible depth, but I think uh, we gave a bit of a taste of the difficulties, that the challenges that they're facing, and also you know, how they are really trying to apply Ukrainian law in a Ukrainian situation. And this is really important that it's actually owned by Ukraine. So what did you think listening back to, to those interviews? Well, the thing that struck me the most is that, you know, uh, theoretically, you know about the conditions that they have to run a court in, but I don't think you really think about it when you look at those trials. Uh, I don't think about a court being interrupted by an air raid and how much time it would take to get everybody in and out. And then I look at the ICC and think what would happen if we had an air raid alarm there. And then I see all of a sudden how much they're, how much they're hobbled and how immense this task is for, for the Ukraine judiciary. And I understand that they want to keep it in hand and it has to be uh, Ukrainian-led and Ukrainian-owned process, but it's it's going to be incredibly difficult to do everything that they need. There's going to be so many cases and so many trials, and and they're so hampered at the moment that I'm really I don't envy those women on the bench there. And I think it was important that we did raise the issue of international cooperation tribunals, etc., and how they might fit in because. I mean, you're as aware as I am that this is part of the swirling discussion around Ukraine, whether there could be additional tribunals or tribunals which are actually part of the system in some way in order to help them go through the processes. But one of the main issues that also struck me from the conference and from discussing with the judges is that there might be some other kind of specific concerns. One that kept on coming back for me is not only that the legal system is you know, basically under strain, but okay, functioning, but that there is still the question which criminal codes they are applying. They have this basic criminal code. 
It is relatively limited. It doesn't necessarily have all the elements of crimes, of war crimes or of crimes against humanity that we might see in something like the Rome Statute. And is it still really fit for purpose? So I also turn back to Guyane to ask her how she saw that. I mean, is is that something that that she is watching out for to see exactly which elements of crimes the Ukrainian judicial system is managing to deal with? I think use of law and international law when trying these war crimes is definitely one of the most important issues to look out for because judges are using this general provision in the code uh, in the criminal code of Ukraine that criminalizes violation of laws and customs of war it's very broad brushstroke these laws so um is it really just using international humanitarian law or you know what are the judges looking at when they judge the the elements of crime that's a good point. So I think judges have to, I think in practice, they are probably using the international humanitarian law and the definition that we have, for example, in the Rome Statute and the elements of crime. But looking out for that analysis and for that application of the law, I think that would be important. And how nuanced is the reasoning? For example, if a person, a defendant is convicted for killing another person, a civilian, is it examined whether the civilian is actually participating in active hostilities, which can change the analysis and affect the outcome of whether it is a war crime or not. So how nuanced is this reasoning by the judges? And do they take into account all the relevant principles of international law if they are, for example, judging someone, trying someone for shelling of uh, civilian objects or shelling of civilian infrastructure? Are they taking into account whether the person was actually aiming at the military object, etc.? So different aspects of international humanitarian law, which need to be taken into account before one can come to the conclusion that there was actually a war crime. So there's a lot to consider when we're looking at these trials uh, from outside. And one of the things I was also wondering about is who exactly is doing the monitoring to make sure that these trials are going well? Who's asking the questions that we're asking here? Who exactly is in court, you know, making note of things? I think Ukrainian civil society, which has been mentioned quite a lot and has been a driving force behind a lot of the reforms in Ukraine in the past decades, is watching this trial uh, trials and uh, raising issues and some of the human rights activists for example say or question what is the purpose of trying someone for shelling a, a civilian building where no one was living what do you achieve with this conviction for example yeah and i also wondered what's the point of a trial then if They're in such difficult conditions, the resources are so tight, and it's not necessarily delivering for individual victims, for individual survivors. That's really one of the issues that these very difficult wartime trials seems to raise. Exactly. And some organizations also raise the issue of the exchange of prisoners uh, of war and whether this leads to impunity and whether uh, this goes against the 
victims' rights to justice, for example, and whether this actually creates a deterrent effect if you're going to convict someone and send them home to Russia anyway, anyway, instead of making them serve the prison sentence. What she raises here is really interesting because it's what happens to prisoners of war and, and the exchanges and, you know, how do these sentences kind of interlink with, you know, the possibility of being exchanged and are you having these war crimes trials or are you having high sentences to create high value prisoners to exchange? You know, what, what is the, what is the thinking? How does this, how does this link into that system? Yeah, every issue that we raise here, I think, yeah, we've got another podcast that we have to to do just on the, on that specific thing. So I asked uh, Guyan, you know, as somebody from Ukraine, is this how she kind of sees the future in front of her? I mean, is it going to take years and years and years to work through the trials and through the issues? When the war started, I read this uh, this statement. We have trauma and tragedy enough for several generations in future. And I think the same probably applies with the accountability and other transitional justice measures that are related to the atrocity crimes committed in this war. Yeah, I think what she says is very um, relevant. I think we've seen it in all, all conflicts that we've covered and, and the judicial aftermath. And for me, obviously, I've been very focused on the former Yugoslavia and Bosnia. And it's very, very uh, long and it's extremely long process and it's very hard to find an end. And there's a lot of attention for this accountability, but there's no real, I guess, assessment or real thing that, 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 that delivers for victims, but we think it should. And it's, it's very complicated swirl of feelings about it. You know, there is a lot of focus on this accountability and to have trials. Uh, but as we know, a lot of experts would also say that there are other methods of transitional justice and uh, maybe for people to have some idea of, of closure. Yeah, I mean, that was raised at the conference. I think Guyan herself was specifically talking about other transitional justice methodology. We've also got to do a podcast, I'm sure, on the issue of reparations, because that's already starting a discussion around that. I think there's even been some kind of UN resolution on it. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Stephanie. And, you know, that just feels like there's this full range kind of beyond accountability and court justice that needs to be considered in terms of actually delivering something back to the victims in this case. Yeah, I think the the good thing here is that there is this focus on victims soon and that there is a focus on victims beyond accountability. We've moved away from the 1990s where accountability was the big thing. Now we know that we need accountability plus something else. But what that something else is, that is still very much a debate and something that people are looking at. I think so. We've talked a lot about holistic approach and there is a lot of different types of help that society needs to come to terms with what is going on. So some of them can be very individual, individual reparations or reparations to the community to rebuild the communities. Perhaps some of them related sort of to raising awareness or um, shedding light on the historical reasons that have led to this conflict. But I would not underestimate the importance of trials because it's also the an opportunity for the victims to come forward. And when I watched the first trial 
for the killing of civilians. And it was a very powerful moment, actually, between the survivor, the widow of the killed civilian, and the accused uh, when there was this confrontation and the accused um, um, asked for her forgiveness in the proceedings. And I think that was a sort of a cathartic moment for the for this woman as well. So thank you so much to Guyane also for uh, spending her time answering all my questions to add some degree of context around our interviews with the Ukraine judges. And we want to end this podcast by going back to our judges who spent a lot of their precious time talking to us during the conference. And of course, we always want to ask the asymmetrical haircuts questions. And so uh, we leave you with that bit. Our final, final question, which you have not prepared for. At which, all. <laughs> whatever, which we never allow anyone to prepare for. Have you been reading anything, listening to anything, watching anything that you would like to share with our audience that you think it would be interesting for them? It can be legal, but it doesn't have to be. People also tell us what they are watching when they don't want to think about yeah, war crimes. For example, I spent all day Saturday watching the last season of The Crown on Netflix, one after the other, the whole day long. I'd like to share my impressions from The Hague. This is the first time I'm in The Hague and in, in the Netherlands. And yesterday I had an opportunity to just to make a tour and saw some of your landmarks. I'm positively impressed from the environment with people and Hopefully that this conference will add new positive impressions. I'd like to say that Ukraine is a very beautiful country, is a large country. There is a lot of interesting places, mountains, villages, towns, beaches. So as soon as we win this war, I cordially invite you to, to visit these beautiful places. It would be lovely to be at a time where we think about something else than war crimes when we think about Ukraine. And I'm sure Janet and I would love to visit. Right. Thank you both very much. And thank you very much to our amazing translator. Thank you so much. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.